What's new in science this week? What's new in science this week? Bench talk, the week in science. Bench talk. Bench talk. Bench talk. You are now listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. Bench Talk, the, the week, week in, in science. science. Well, hey there. Dave Robinson here telling you that we've got a special Bench Talk show for you today. It's all about the sky. The majority of the show is about global climate change, but it finishes with a description of what stars and planets we can see in the night sky this month. First, we'll hear from Scott Miller providing a primer on the causes, implications, and trends regarding global climate change. And then we'll hear from the Union of Concerned Scientists about how climate change has manifested itself so far this year. Then we'll hear about a recent policy brief released by the Kentuckians for Science Education. It's about how coal mining communities are impacted by changing energy economics and environmental policies. And the show will finish on a lighter note with a description of what stars and planets we can see in the night sky this month. Hold on to your horses. You can see a lot in the night sky now. Saturn, Venus, Jupiter, and two meteor showers, one involving the remnants of Comet Halley. So let's get started. J. Scott Miller, Professor of Physics and Astronomy at Maysville Community and Technical College, is going to give us some background about climate change. Now, this can be a controversial topic, so I need to remind you that Forward Radio's primary mission is educational, and we don't endorse any political party over another. So, Take it away, Scott. Not much has been made in the news of late regarding climate change. Understandable due to the raging COVID-19 pandemic we are still dealing with after more than a year. Remedied by following CDC guidelines of getting vaccinated, social distancing, wearing masks in crowded situations. But even though most politicians, primarily of one political party, likely find this absence from the news a good thing, it does not make it go away in reality. Back in March, a paper was published in the Geophysical Research Letters based on NASA observations that indicated that human activities are causing a release of greenhouse gases and aerosols that are, in turn, affecting Earth's energy balance. To quote from Ryan Kramer, first author of that paper and a researcher at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, this is the first calculation of the total radiative forcing of Earth using global observations, accounting for effects of aerosols and greenhouse gases. It's direct evidence that human activities are causing changes in the Earth's energy budget. According to NASA's Global Climate Change News from April 2021, which is where I found this article, Earth is on a budget, an energy budget. Our planet is constantly trying to balance the flow of energy in and out of Earth's system, but human activities are throwing off that balance causing our planet to warm in response. Radiative energy enters Earth's system from the sunlight that shines on our planet. Some of this energy reflects off Earth's surface or atmosphere back into space. The rest gets absorbed, heats the planet, and then is re-emitted as thermal radiative energy the same way that black asphalt gets hot and radiates heat on a sunny day. Eventually, this energy also heads towards space, but some of it gets reabsorbed by clouds and greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. The absorbed energy may also be emitted back toward Earth, where it will warm the surface even more. 
Adding more components that absorb radiation, like greenhouse gases, or removing those that reflect it, like aerosols, throws off Earth's energy balance and causes more energy to be absorbed by Earth instead of escaping into space. This is called a radiative forcing, and it's the dominant way human activities are affecting the climate. This NASA study has confirmed the prediction that humans are responsible for this radiative forcing through direct observation. In an article I read appearing in Astronomy Magazine online this past August, more is made of Earth's energy budget being out of balance. It provided links to the latest data from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Their findings are that almost all the absorbed energy is matched by energy emitted back into space. However, a residual amount accumulates as global warming. That residual has increased from just under 0.6 watts per square meter at the end of the last century to 0.79 in the years 2006 through 2018. The atmosphere absorbs a lot of energy and emits it as radiation both into space and back down to the planet's surface. In fact, Earth's surface gets almost twice as much radiation from the atmosphere as it does from direct sunshine. That's primarily because the sun heats the surface only during the day, while the warm atmosphere is up there 24-7. Quoting more from that article, Together, the energy reaching Earth's surface from the sun and from the atmosphere is about 504 watts per square meter. Earth's surface emits about 79% of that back out. The remaining surface energy goes into evaporating water and warming the air, oceans, and land. The residual between incoming sunshine and outgoing infrared is due to the accumulation of greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide in the air. These gases are transparent to sunlight but opaque to infrared rays. They absorb and emit a lot of infrared rays back down. Earth's surface temperature must increase in response until balance between incoming and outgoing radiation is restored. Doubling the carbon dioxide would add 3.7 watts of heat to every square meter of the Earth. Imagine old-fashioned incandescent nightlights spaced every three feet over the entire world, left on forever. At the current emission rate, greenhouse gas levels would double from pre-industrial levels by the middle of this century. Climate scientists calculate that adding this much heat to the world would warm Earth's climate by about 5 degrees Fahrenheit. Preventing this would require replacing fossil fuel combustion, the leading source of greenhouse gas emissions, with other forms of energy. End of quote. Putting this all together, Humans continue to knock the Earth's energy balance out of whack. Observational evidence supports this finding. One easy step to solving this problem is to remove those politicians standing in the way by voting them out of office so that more can be done. More might be done through legislation. Persuading those industries as well as individuals to stop contributing to the problem would also be appropriate. The wait-and-see policies are not working. Something much more progressive is needed if we want Earth to continue to provide life here a proper haven for living. That was J. Scott Miller, physics professor at Maysville Community College in Maysville, Kentucky. Thanks, Scott. Next, we'll hear Colleen McDonald of the Union of Concerned Scientists interview Dr. Christina Dahl, a paleoclimatologist, in one of the Union of Concerned Scientists Got Science podcasts. This particular podcast was called Off the Charts Heat, 
Zombie Fires, Drought, and Heat Domes, and it's a review of what sort of extreme weather events we've experienced during the first half of 2021. It was produced on July 20th, 2021, so doesn't even include the weather events from later in the summer. We'll provide links to the full interview on our SoundCloud and Facebook pages if you're interested. So here are Colleen and Christina. Talk to me a little bit about what you're seeing so far this summer. So this summer, we were seeing extreme heat happening in different regions throughout the country. I've tended to think of it like the eye of Sauron for the Lord of the Rings fans out there, where you've just got this intense eye that's drifting from one part of the country to the other, because it seems like there's always some region this summer that's experiencing really intense heat. We saw it in early June in New England, and where we saw schools in Massachusetts and New Hampshire either closing for the day or dismissing students early because the heat was so intense and a lot of classrooms just aren't equipped for that. They're not used to experiencing extreme heat during the school year. The heat then moved to the Great Plains, and we saw roads buckling outside of Omaha, Nebraska. And then, of course, it turned to the Pacific Northwest, a region that's just not at all used to dealing with extreme heat, but was dealing for an extended period of time with conditions more typical of like Phoenix or Dallas. Right. Some of the temperatures, for example, in Portland, Oregon, were completely off the charts, right? Yeah. I mean, they were seeing temperatures above 110. I think one day they hit something like 115, which is hot even for someplace like Phoenix, but is easily 30 35 degrees above normal for that area. So while we're talking about Oregon and the Pacific Northwest, there's a lot of discussion about the heat dome causing problems. And I wonder if you could explain to us what the heat dome is and its connection to climate change. Sure. So a heat dome is an area in the atmosphere of very high pressure, and it tends to push air down toward the surface of the earth. And as the air moves downwards, it heats up. And you essentially get areas that are kind of trapped under this dome of heat. Part of what's doing that trapping is a wavy pattern in the jet stream. So the jet stream is this broad current of air that brings us most of our weather in the United States. It moves from west to east across the country. But rather than being just, you know, a straight line west to east, it has sort of waves in an, you know, sometimes it's a little farther north, sometimes a little farther south. And what we've observed over the last few decades with climate change is that the waviness of the jet stream is getting stronger. So we're having bigger ups and downs north and south in the jet stream. And what that is causing is weather patterns to become kind of stuck. We see this not just with heat in the summertime, but we've also seen it with things like hurricanes. You know, you can get weather patterns getting stuck in place and you essentially during a hurricane end up dumping tons and tons of rain in one place because it's not just moving quickly along as it used to. So that's part of what's been happening with this heat dome that everyone's been experiencing is that it's trapped in one of those waves of the jet stream. Let's talk about wildfire season for a moment. What's happening on that front? So the West has been 
in a state of very severe drought, particularly over the last few months. In much of California, we received between 30 and 40% of the amount of rain we usually experience during the wet season. So it's been very dry. We've got reservoir levels really low. We've got the moisture of vegetation, which is something that's carefully monitored for wildfire purposes, is very low. The vegetation is very dry. And so as a result of all that, they are expecting an above average wildfire season out west, not just in California, but much of Oregon, Washington, even as far east as northern Minnesota in the latest forecast, they're showing enhanced risk of wildfires this summer. So Christy, what will things look like in 10 or 20 years? Yeah, I mean, we're looking at a future that's somewhat constrained, right? You know, it's dangerous to take a walk outside We've seen community pools having to close because the decks around them are too hot. Playground surfaces become too hot to touch and unsafe for kids. And so we're looking at summers essentially becoming a time when we have to spend more time indoors than we're accustomed to doing. People are starting to think more about wildfire season and to plan for it. We've had so much wildfire smoke out here in the fall season for the last few years that I do hear people starting to take that into account when they're making travel plans, for example, or having family come to visit. You know, we're going to have to find a way to live with these kinds of conditions. And that may mean that you can't go to the playground in the summer because it's too hot. That may mean that you can't go hiking in the fall in parts of California because the smoke is too intense. But I think a lot of people will start to question where they're living as they find their lives increasingly constrained by climate change. I've been reading a lot about different pieces of infrastructure failing, like roads buckling. Yeah, there's a lot of infrastructure that's affected by extreme heat. You know, in Seattle recently, they had to slow down their light rail trains because the rails can bend and deform in the heat. And also the the power lines above the trains, when it's really hot, start to sag. And so that can cause problems as well. I've heard the term zombie fires used, which of course, anything with zombie in it sounds terrifying. But as I understand it, this is a place that's already been ravaged by a wildfire, but somehow this fire can come back in the same place. Is that right? Yeah. So zombie fire is a relatively new term. They are also called holdover fires, if you don't want to go the scary route. But essentially, these are fires that have burned in the summertime, and there's still kind of embers smoldering And they're able to continue smoldering below the surface of the ground over the wintertime period. Underneath, you have fires feeding off of the kind of dry organic material that's in the soil. So it is pretty scary to think that even once we have those fires fully contained and the danger to homes and the smoke-related danger starts to ease up, that there could be those seeds of next season's fire already planted in the ground. Do you think scientists are sounding the alarm bells loudly enough? You know, I think we need all kinds of science to be happening right now. And there are a lot of scientists in academia who prefer to focus on their own research problems, and they're not as concerned with raising the alarm. 
And some of that has to do with academic scientific culture and fears of being viewed as less objective by your colleagues. We do see a lot of scientists, though, starting to take up this cause and raise their voices. That was Colleen McDonald and Dr. Kristen Dahl of the Union of Concerned Scientists. Thanks to them for letting us share this information. We'll provide full links to the Got Science podcast on our SoundCloud and Facebook pages. Now it's time to hear from the Kentuckians for Science Education. Full disclosure, I'm a longtime member of the Kentuckians for Science Education. They're a nonprofit organization, mostly composed of scientists, science lovers, and educators who advocate for high-quality science education here in Kentucky. They recently published a policy brief called Climate Change and Kentucky, Addressing the Impact of Climate Change While Revitalizing Our Coal Communities, and I thought you might want to hear their perspective. So we're going to hear from the president of the Kentuckians for Science Education, Kaylin Glover, who is pursuing her doctorate in biology at the University of Kentucky. First, Kaylin gives us some background on the issue of climate change and how it impacts coal mining communities. So let's hear that first. A lot of scientists will focus on spouting facts and statistics and studies and list all the negative impacts while not thinking about the impact that climate change policy is going to have on other people, specifically people whose industries might be negatively impacted by climate change policies. So it's really important that conversations about climate change and the kinds of policies that we would in an ideal world implement. So it's really important that conversations about climate change policy include viewpoints from everyone involved, the scientists and the people who work in industries like the coal industry that might be impacted by climate change policies. And so that's what this brief is designed to do. It's designed to help bridge the gap between the science and its impact on others. It looks at the climate change industry. It looks at the impact that climate change itself is going to have on Kentucky industries. And it proposes solutions that encompass both the science and the communities and proposes things that can positively benefit them. Coal, for example, has been declining as an industry for 50 years, specifically in Kentucky, longer than that if you look at nationwide trends. The declines in the industry don't have to do with climate change or renewable energy, but instead are just the artifacts of natural technological advancement. The good news is that we can use climate change industries and renewable energy and sustainable industry practices to reinvigorate communities that have been negatively impacted by these normal technological advancements in coal industries and production and power plants. And so instead of trying to have this battle between climate change activists and coal communities, for example, 
it is so much more productive to talk about ways that we can meet the needs of both communities from both perspectives. That's how we're going to implement policy that has a positive impact on everyone. That was Kaylin Glover, president of the Kentuckians for Science Education, providing some background on the topic. Now let's hear the executive summary of the KSE's recently released policy brief on the topic of climate change and coal communities. Take it away again, Kaylin. Increases in global temperatures cause new precipitation patterns, and these two factors combine into drastic changes in climate. For Kentucky, this means an overall warmer and drier climate accompanied by seasonal storms, making us more susceptible to extreme heat, drought, flooding, and wildfires, more than almost all other states. We have already begun to feel these changes, and for decades to come, they will continue to negatively impact the health and safety of Kentuckians, our property, and our most important industries, including natural resources, agriculture, livestock, and equine. As we address the impact of climate change, we can simultaneously address another problem we face, the decline of the coal industry. Employment in Kentucky's coal industry first began to drop in the 1970s as technological advancements allowed coal to be harvested with fewer workers. It continued to decline as it struggled to compete with coal harvested from newer mines in the western United States and with natural gas. By the mid-2000s, Kentucky was nearly as reliant on non-Kentucky coal as it was our own, and by 2019, coal was responsible for only one-third of our state's energy consumption. Not only is the coal industry in decline, and thus an unreliable energy investment, coal has serious costs for the coal community. When the total costs are considered, including wages, health costs, and mortality rates, coal costs our communities more than 40 times what it brings in. Fortunately, we can invest in our coal communities in ways that are both environmentally and economically sustainable, helping to slow climate change and its negative impacts while reinvigorating these communities. For example, mountaintop mines are perfect locations for both solar and wind farms, and investing in them allows these communities to continue providing energy for the Commonwealth and the country. These sites can also be used for other sustainable industries, including timber farms and small-scale agriculture. Finally, several coal byproducts that are readily available are proving to be valuable sources of high-demand products, including carbon fiber and rare earth elements, both of which are necessary for our most advanced technologies. In addition to investing in these communities, we can help other businesses and industries transition to sustainable practices and reap its numerous benefits. Changes to our climate will bring changes to the lives of Kentuckians, but by exploring new avenues of sustainable energy and industries, we can ensure long, healthy, and productive lives for those in the Commonwealth. That was Kaylin Glover, president of the Kentuckians for Science Education, reading the executive summary of the KSE's recently released policy brief on the topic of climate change and coal. Thanks, Kaylin. Next, Scott Miller is back telling us what we can see in the night sky this October. Take it away, Scott. October has arrived with hopefully cooler temperatures and with darker skies earlier in the evening than in summer months. As I step out on my front porch a little after 8 p.m., the Big Dipper can be found low in the northwestern sky. The Big Dipper is a bit of a challenge and remains that way over the next few months. 
Stars that make it up are easily hidden from view by objects on the horizon. But moving around a bit allows me to find it. The seven stars that make up the Big Dipper look much like a cooking pot sitting on a stove at this time of the year, with four stars making up its bowl and three more in a bent line making up the handle. The two pointer stars mark the front side of the Dipper's bowl. These are used to find the North Star Polaris. Start with the bottom of those two stars and draw a line through and beyond the upper star, the one that marks the lip of the Dipper's bowl. Extend that line about five to six times the separation of the pointer stars. That line leads to Polaris. Polaris has the distinction of not appearing to move throughout the night. All the other stars in the sky seem to move around it over the course of one night. And this is true throughout the year, providing a permanent marker for the direction north. Polaris is part of the group of stars, asterism in science speak, called the Little Dipper. It does, in fact, mark the end of the handle of the Little Dipper. In the early evening skies of October, one sees two more stars that finish the handle up and to the left of Polaris. If the skies are dark enough, no washout from city lights, beyond those three are four stars in the shape of a box that together with the handle finish the Little Dipper. Now that north has been established, I turn left about 90 degrees to view the western sky. Venus continues to linger there in the west. Because of where it is in its orbit and where Earth is in its orbit, Venus is going to appear to drift parallel to the horizon through the end of the year if one gets out at about the same time each night. It will finally disappear before Saturn has a chance to get close to it about mid-January. The moon will be just above Venus the evening of October 9th. Located just to the left of due south, about 8 o'clock in the evening, is the planet Saturn. To its left is Jupiter. Jupiter is the brighter of the two. These two have been trailing each other night after night across the southern skies. Neither is quite as bright as they were this past summer when we passed each in turn in our faster orbit around the sun. Still, they outshine many of the stars making for an easy target for the eyes or even a good pair of binoculars or a small telescope, if either is handy. To verify that these two have been found, the moon is ready to help. On the evening of the 13th, the moon will be below and to the right of Saturn. The next night, it will be almost halfway between the two. And finally, on the 15th, it will be to the left of Jupiter. High overhead, as darkness falls, is the Summer Triangle. Like the Big and Little Dippers, the Summer Triangle is an asterism. It is made of three bright stars from three different constellations. The westernmost is Vega in the constellation of Lyra the Harp. The eastern star is Deneb in Cygnus the Swan. The southern star is Altair in Aquila the Eagle. It is located a bit above and to the right of Jupiter and Saturn, but not as bright as those two. Over in the northeastern sky, the W-shaped pattern of stars known as Cassiopeia can be found. Cassiopeia is supposed to be a queen sitting on her throne, but she may be a bit on her head in this configuration. The southern part of the W, along with a dimmer star nearby that makes a box shape, is the seat of the throne, while the two northern stars of the W are its back. Just below Cassiopeia, one might find a square of stars all of about the same brightness. This is the great square of Pegasus, another asterism. It makes it the body of that winged horse. The legs, neck, and head are made of dimmer stars. I will fill in the horse in a later episode when it gets higher in the eastern sky.
There are a couple of meteor showers that peak during the month of October. The Draconid shower peaks the night of October 8th. It is not a very productive shower, but you may see some streaks of light apparently coming out of the northern sky over the next few nights if the weather permits. The second of the two, and a bit better known, is the Orionid meteor shower. It peaks overnight the evening of October 20th and early morning hours of the 21st. Meteor showers are generally times when we pass through the path of a comet, sweeping up debris along the orbit left behind by the comet on previous passages around the Sun. In the case of the Orionid meteor shower, the contributor of debris is Comet Halley, one of the most famous comets known. Unfortunately, the Moon will be full or nearly so, which will cut down the number seen if any are seen at all. October skies, with its earlier darkness and crisper temperatures, beckon with lots to see. Planets, meteors, and constellations aplenty. A good time to leave couch potato mode and enjoy the wonders of the night sky. That was Scott Miller of Maysville Community and Technical College. Thanks again, Scott. And thanks to you for tuning into the show this week. You've been listening to Bench Talk the Week in Science. See you next week. Same time, same place.